0: Hello, hello, and welcome to Mountain Talk from WMMT. I'm Benny Becker. On today's show, we're going deep into one of the most mysterious parts of human life. Language. It takes years for us to learn how to use language. Then, once you learn it, it's almost effortless to use, but still really, really hard to explain how any of it works. Today's show is not about how weird and complicated grammar is, it's about the people of Appalachia and what our language says about our place in society. For today's show, I sat down with Professor Amy Clark, and here we are, talking Appalachian.
1: I'm Amy Clark. I'm a professor of English at UVA's College at Wise. I've been here for about 15 years, and I'm co-director for the Center for Appalachian Studies.
0: So what would you say that means? What does Appalachian Studies cover?
1: (laughs) Uh, Well, it just concentrates on a scholarly examination of the region and issues and topics pertinent to the region. Okay,
0: so today I'm especially interested in talking about the language part Mm -hmm. of things, which sounds like that's... That's what you teach, that's kind of your focus, and I, and you wrote a book too, right?
1: Yes, I co-edited a book called Talking Appalachian with Nancy Hayward, and it's a collection of both scholarly pieces and creative pieces, because we thought you really need both to understand what we mean by dialect. Uh, we can talk about what it is and, and things like empowerment and history, But you also need the creative side to understand what it means to be a speaker. And that's what the second half of the book covers with Appalachian authors like Silas House and Denise Giardina and George Ella Lyon and Lee Smith, you know, all the greats who have offered interpretations of what it means to be a speaker of an Appalachian dialect.
0: So from from all of those different perspectives, do you have an answer when someone asks you what is the Appalachian dialect or what does it mean to talk Appalachian?
1: Well, I start by saying, you know, we talk about it in the plural because there is no one Appalachian dialect. There are many. Really, we talk about Appalachian Englishes. Appalachia is a huge region. It's comprised of rural and urban places. And so when you think about the fact that migration patterns and industry and culture all influence a dialect and you think about how many differences there are up and down the Appalachian mountain chain, then that helps people understand why there are so many different ways of saying things. And yet, I think what fascinates me is that we have features, like here in central Appalachia, we have dialect features that we share with folks in northern Appalachia, probably because of those migration patterns. I find that fascinating.
0: I mean, that's really interesting to me. I'll I'll just say I'm from Morgantown, West Virginia, so that Mm -hmm. is edging into northern Appalachia, and I have some family from Pittsburgh, which I guess probably already is northern Appalachia. Yeah, it is. Um, And I've I've been a little surprised by how many, by some of the features. I thought they stopped when you went south, and some of them just pop up, like the... Like, the car needs washed yes. and that kind of thing.
1: Or washed. Yeah,
0: yeah. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, yeah.
1: yeah that, that I lived just outside Pittsburgh for a while in a, in a town called Indiana, Pennsylvania. And um, that's where I got my Ph.D. I think that's where I really started to pick up on this idea that I was still home, even though I was far, far away from where I'd grown up. I still felt like I was at home. There was something about... The land and the people, and even the language, as different as it can be, that I still felt that connection to Appalachia. That was very, that was very clear to me the whole time that I was there.
0: That, that has me thinking. It sounds like to you, it's the idea of being part of Appalachia still that makes it home.
1: Mm-hmm. And
0: this is something that's been confusing me a little because sometimes you get the you have the conflict between people who feel strongly about Appalachia versus Appalachia. Mm-hmm. And then you have people who just don't really think of Appalachia as a thing at all. It's just, are you from around here or not? Right. Do you have, is there a place where everyone can kind of come together and agree what, what makes sense and where the identities should be drawn? Well,
1: identity is a complicated thing. And we spend a lot of time in the introduction of the book talking about identity as a complicated notion. Um, because, yes, I've I've talked with people who who grew up here but they do not identify as Appalachian and I understand that. Same thing with dialect. I know people who have erased it purposefully because they just they don't want the association and I understand that as well. I really think when it comes to identity it's a choice you make. It's a choice you make and I think as we grow over time, I know with me personally, and some of the authors talk about this, Crystal Wilkinson in particular talks about this, not the essay in my book, but she wrote a wonderful essay, and the title will come to me eventually, <laughs> uh, where she talks about going to college and really not understanding who she was, where her identity fit as a black woman in Appalachia. you know, And, and when she met Frank X. Walker and the afro poets, she realized, she came into her voice. And I think so many of us feel that way. I know I did. I, you know, I grew up being sort of self-conscious of the way that I spoke, and then when you get multiple degrees in English, that just intensifies. You sort of feel pressure to, we call it leveling, you feel pressure to ease back on the way that you're pronouncing your words or really change your grammar patterns, sort of separate yourself from that. But then there came a point in my life when I started to understand that that could be part of me, and I didn't have to apologize for it. And Silas House writes about this in his essay in the book very explicitly. It goes all the way back to his parents and when they moved north for work in the factories and they were made fun of for saying um, aluminum full instead of, you know, the F-O-I-L. And then he had the same issue come up for him as an adult with O-I-L, and how to pronounce it on an audio book he was recording. So it, it's deep. It has many complicated layers, I think, and I think it changes for us over time. I think it's something we have to grow into, maybe. And maybe there are people out there that have known from the beginning that they're Appalachian and that's what they are and they're not going to apologize for it, and that's great. It just, But I think for so many of us, it's something we've had to work through and come to understand on a very personal level. It's different if you're a man or a woman or black or white or Hispanic. There's no one Appalachian person, right? It's very different. And I, I think that's one of the great things about the Appalachian Studies Association Conference that's held every year. It's becoming so much more diverse, recognizing that Appalachia is this very complex and diverse place.
0: So you're kind of saying, I mean, this is something I've experienced myself. I'll mm-hmm. say I, my family is Jewish, which mm-hmm. is not something that's often considered, you know, right. like mainstream Appalachian. Mm-hmm. And for me, I guess what I'm hearing is there's this thought of if you're if you have a claim to Appalachia, if your family's from Appalachia, if you've lived in Appalachia and you decide you're Appalachian, then you can be Appalachian. And you can as, be
1: Appalachian. Yes. Or yeah. Appalachian, you know. Yeah. And I you, know, you touched on that pronunciation. I used to have this really negative knee jerk reaction to Appalachia and it's still It still doesn't seem natural to me because that's not how we pronounce it here, but I have met people and talked with people who identify as Appalachian who do use the long A. And I've had conversations with Silas House about this, and it really helped me to understand that who are we to tell someone that that's wrong, that's not how you say it. Now, there are people who are quick to do that, but I really think it depends on which part of the region you're from and how you're taught to say it and how you identify, so...
0: That does get me thinking if you consider a place like Pittsburgh which is by the mm-hmm. mountain range by the geography they're they're in it right but if you go there and you ask someone if they're from Appalachia first of all they'll say Appalachia right and second of all they, mm-hmm. they don't consider themselves that so do you feel like having that different degree of claiming it gives people more or less right to define what it's called
1: to some degree and you know I've met people from Pittsburgh that have identified I I wrote a column for the Post-Gazette one time, and it was it had an Appalachian focus, and I got a lot of feedback from people in Pittsburgh who identified, and I was surprised, because I didn't think that, I, I was like you, I didn't think anybody really did, so there are a few people out there who do, and I know on our Facebook page, when I've posted anything about Pittsburghese as an Appalachian dialect, I get lots and lots of responses from people who recognize and identify that way, so... I think to some degree, yeah. I think everybody gets to to figure that out. Is your question, if someone's from Pittsburgh and they say, no, I'm not Appalachian, can that be a a correct assumption?
0: Well, I'm just thinking if there's someone from Pittsburgh and they don't claim themselves to be from the region and they're pushing the pronunciation Appalachia. Like something with that kind of sits uneasy with me. But on the other hand there is what you're saying that maybe everyone has the right to define it. Everyone
1: has the right to define their own identity and and yeah it may make us uneasy but but like I said that's a personal choice. There are so many things that come with the price about being Appalachian. The dialect is one. It, It has, there's some stigma associated with it and and so, and the media certainly hasn't helped with the caricatures that have been promoted in film and in literature. So I understand why some people don't want to be associated. I understand that. I, I don't judge. Yeah. There are lots of reasons.
0: I had an experience where it was kind of that, but I didn't really feel like it was a choice looking back. Mm-hmm. Like, there were points where I started picking up more of an Appalachian dialect, mm-hmm. and then I just kind of felt all this pressure around me that to... To not talk like that really. And I never I never really thought like, oh, I shouldn't do this. it's just mm-hmm. it wasn't a thing that was good. Well, I guess I'm wondering when did it start to get that stigma? Was there a moment?
1: Uh, the, the dialect in particular. Well, it really started with local color literature, literature that was written about the region back around the 19th century some people were traveling through, and they wrote books about the people, and they really exaggerated the speech and exaggerated some of what they saw to make it, you know, very romantic or silly, depending on what kind of book they wanted to sell. And then from books, you know, you had documentaries during the war on poverty, and they found the worst pockets of Appalachia, and the most pitiful looking people to put on television. And from there, you've got films and Beverly Hillbillies, TV shows, you've got Snuffy Smith comics. I mean, there are just so many ways that it has become this stock hillbilly character that speaks this stock hillbilly way. And I really think that that's what most people who aren't from around here, that's the perception they have. And, you know, stereotype works both ways. I mean, I know know a lot of us around here think, you go up north and everybody's rude and, you know, talks fast and nobody will help you out, those kinds of things. I mean, we have these notions based on place about all kinds of different people in different places. But, yeah, it started a long, long time ago, and it's a... I think there's more awareness, thanks to modern Appalachian literature, especially with James Still and Harriet Simpson Arno and and people like Lee Smith... Lee Smith calls it an Appalachianization of America. I think we got out there through the arts, and people started to understand and appreciate more what this region has to offer. But we still got a long way to go, I think.
0: Well, I wanted to step a little bit further back in the history. Mm -hmm. It's one thing that's always stuck with me. I remember, so in West Virginia in eighth grade, it's West Virginia Studies. And I remember there was a line in the textbook that says, Um, Like the Appalachian dialect is the best preserved version of of Elizabethan English, you know, from like (laughs) Shakespeare in the 1600s. That
1: was in a textbook. Yeah. Mm. Uh, Well, uh, linguist Michael Montgomery is probably the foremost authority on the history of Appalachian Englishes. And he has argued extensively that that is a myth that uh, there are so few Elizabethan relics of the language left, we can't really say it's a preserved form of Elizabethan English. Um, actually, there are features of the language that predate Elizabethan English, you know, that go all the way back to Old English. So language is this living thing. It's, it comes and goes with people, and it's changed over time, and that's fascinating. But by the same token, you have to remember that so much change has taken place. He says that most of what we speak actually are colonial constructions. You know, it happened after, you know, America was formed and we wanted to create this separation really from the British and and change spellings and change pronunciations. And so uh, most of it is, you know, dates back to colonial days, but there are these linguistic artifacts, these phrases, these words, these grammar patterns that you can find in Shakespeare and earlier um, which is true but it's a leap to say that we speak Elizabethan English or that we've preserved Elizabethan English here and another reason that you know that comes around for a couple of reasons um, it's a romantic thing to say you know it really is it's a romantic thing to say but also so many churches in Appalachia still use the King James Version of the Bible and you'll hear I grew up in a free will baptist church you know loud preaching and and this king james version of the bible so i i remember the preacher sounding like that you know the thee and thy and thou and the way that the words hath, you know the way the words are spelled in that version of the bible so i think two people connect that with this idea of a preserved elizabethan language as well because they hear it so often in the churches
0: so, well, do you think there is something that can be said about like i, I know people have studied what what being isolated as a as mm-hmm. a community does to the language is is I there think, a difference compared to other dialects of american english
1: um is in terms of old in terms of age i would say you know we do have probably some of the oldest living dialects in the united states isolation you know could be part of it, but when you think about the industrialization of America and how many immigrants flooded this region, late 19th century, early 20th century, it's hard to say that we were isolated. You know, I mean, the minute they built those railroads and people were coming and going all the time, certainly there are these pockets of families that live in hollers. You know, I, I come from a family that, you know, five generations lived in the same place and, um, I do think that that language is handed down, you know, from family to family, but I think for the longest time, if anything, it, it probably was preserved because people were, they were farmers, you know, pre-industrialization. They weren't traveling much because they were working their farms. There were no formal, really formal schools set up for a long time, and so what started to standardize language was when people had to, when they were going to school, when they were traveling, when they were working with the public, you know, then there's an awareness of how you're speaking. There's more of an awareness of, of what people think of how you're speaking or whether they can understand you. And so that, I think that was the process that took place that started to change. Now, why people choose to use some of these features that are very, very old Has a lot to do with solidarity. They want that connection to place and they want that connection to family. Um, I know that's why I do it. You know, when I'm home, it's like wearing comfortable shoes and shoes that pinch your feet. You know, um, for some people, standard English just pinches their feet. You know, to switch into standard English all the time is an uncomfortable way to be. But to go home and be around friends and family, it's like a pair of comfortable shoes. You revert back to that home voice and that's how you achieve solidarity with your family is to sound like them and to speak with them in that way so that I don't want to sound like Dr. Amy Clark with my family, right? And we call it code switching. I do workshops sometimes with universities on this very issue is how do you shift from one to the other without abandoning your first voice.
0: Do you have like a short list of important things to keep in mind if you're a person who who lives a life that includes code switching?
1: Well, um, you know, a dialect is made up of three things, your vocabulary, your grammar patterns, and the way that you, you're sound, the way that your accent, the way that you say light or light or pains or pants. And um, I think being aware of whether or not you're clear, number one, you know, being clear. If I say I'm put, uh, If I say, you know, there's a far drill in an air. How many people are going to understand that who are not from Central Africa? You know, there's a far drill in one air. Well, I'm saying there's a fire drill in one hour, right? But that's an accent issue that would cause misunderstanding and a safety problem, right? So even though sometimes it feels uncomfortable and some people may feel like they're trying to be someone they're not, I mean, code switching is an important skill to to know for certain professions so that you can for teachers we talk to teachers about it just modeling for your students but not not erasing you know I think grammar of all those features grammar is probably the one that causes people the most trouble because it's rarely ever acceptable for grammar to be non-standard you know in written and spoken English like double negatives ain't got none or irregular verbs being leveled like I note it and yet, that's such a part of the oral tradition around here. It's such a part of storytelling that it can creep into your spoken language easily. So it's just an awareness, an awareness of audience and, and thinking and making sure that you're clear.
0: Can I ask, do you have thoughts on why that might be, that people can be a little more forgiving about about your accent or even your word choice than mm-hmm. they will be about your grammar decisions? And there's a sense that if you're not using standard grammar then you're just wrong is do you have a sense for why that could be well
1: because that's what they teach in public that's what we teach in schools right that's standard english is the power dialect of english you know of all the dialects of english there are some associated with the working class and some associated with the upper class and and standard english is the power dialect and that's what we teach in American public schools and so you're you're told from kindergarten all the way up that there's a right way and a wrong way and the focus is almost always on grammar and um, and so I think I think that's that's it I think that's why we put so much emphasis on it but there are also a lot of people who say that we use grammar patterns to to judge it's a way to be classist and racist without saying that you are to judge the way that people use grammar, and so i I don't think everyone who calls themselves a grammar snob does that, but but certainly I think there are people who use it as a way to uh, diminish people of certain class or a certain race
0: so I think the counter argument people make is they say is they say, well, language only works if we all agree. The rules mm-hmm. come from people using it and agreeing and you know, maybe it's awful that, maybe it's not fair that it's the people who, who have always had the power, who have the power to make their native way of talking the right way of talking, mm-hmm. but does that, do you have sympathies to that, to that idea? No,
1: <laughs> because I think, like I said, you know, I'm a rhetorician, so I really believe that audience and occasion, that's all you have to consider. I don't think that there's a right way to to speak all the time. I know people who are raising their children that way, uh, to only ever speak standard English, and I, I can understand that because they want their children to be empowered by that. However, you know, studies have shown that there are very few instances where it's going to be difficult for one speaker of English to understand another speaker of English, right? So it, it's, it really doesn't come down so much to clarity as it does come down to judgment. But when I do workshops with teachers, I show them an example of a poem by George Ella Lyon or a poem by Langston Hughes that is written in vernacular dialect, and we read it out loud. You know, we read Mother to Son by Langston Hughes. You know, I tell you, life ain't been no crystal stair, right? And... We read it aloud, then they translate it into standard English, and we read it again. And you hear what's lost. I mean, it's not the same poem. It's not beautiful anymore. It doesn't carry the same message anymore. There's no persona. You know, we've killed her off because her voice is gone. So what made that work of art distinctive is gone. And so that's what I try to show them in arguing against this idea that that it's better that we all be the same.
0: Does that make sense? I think so. I mean, so I I get it's there's one point is that it's more comfortable if it's where you come from, what you grew up with. This Mm -hmm. is just the way of speaking you know. And two is that it's a whole other toolkit of it has another range of expression but a lot of people do seem to have problems when they go away to university mm-hmm. or they find themselves in these other places where, sure. where standard American English, I've heard some people call it old rich white man English. I mean, there is there is a connection, I guess. Mm-hmm. People who encounter the, the stuffier dialect or the academic dialect of English mm-hmm. have a have a hard time still. So, I mean, do you, does it bother you that people then feel feel the need to learn to code switch? Or do you think that's the right approach?
1: I think everybody learns, most everybody learns to code switch and they learn that as a, in a subconscious way. My children are very, very young and they're doing it. And they don't even realize they're doing it. But I can hear them doing it. No, I think code switching is an essential skill. Some people call it code meshing. And I think that's where the term is leading is code meshing because they say you can't really turn one off and turn the other on. It's not possible. So you're really meshing two codes into one dialect when you shift, um, which is true. But I I encounter that. I encounter that, and I would be a liar if if I didn't say that even when I travel, I'm aware that my speech uh, is being judged. You know, I my accent might be judged. I'm aware of that, and I'm self-conscious about that. Um, I don't know. I really think that it is... A choice you have to make but when you think about our presidents even the presidents that we've had you know not every president we've had has spoken in a in a standard dialect they may have used standard grammar but you knew if they were from the south or if they were from New England you know you think about some of the dialects of New England that are associated with upper classes it's really an attitude that people have, and it, it comes down to what you're willing to accept when it comes down to perceptions about yourself and your region. It, it really has to eventually be a personal choice. And that's why we tell teachers not to tell students that it's wrong, but like you said, it's, there's a language toolkit that we carry, and you can empower yourself by having more than one dialect in that toolkit and knowing when to use it.
0: Is there something that you wish was happening more often in in schools, in education, and how the dialect gets treated in this this region?
1: Well, I think it is happening more often now. Um, I think there are programs that are teaching code switching as opposed to a right and a wrong way of speaking English. I know that the program we use started in Tidewater, Virginia with African American elementary school students who... um, we're having trouble with benchmark scores on their tests and they did this method of comparing your home dialect to standard English and not saying one is right or one is wrong but saying here are the differences and here's what you do if you want to shift into one and shift out of the other one. So I would love for all schools to be doing that, you know, instead of saying you have to erase or abandon this voice and adopt this voice because like I said, I always come back to the literature, you know, where would we be? We wouldn't have this wonderful body of African-American literature or Appalachian literature without the distinctions of voice. I think that's what makes some of it so rich.
0: So it sounds like you think the the well, the Appalachian dialect and the African-American dialect, and I guess also they're, they they intersect, but do mm-hmm. you feel like those two are kind of in a class together of, of regional dialects that are having, facing similar issues in, in oh, language sure. in America? Yeah,
1: and there are a lot of similarities that we share. And Walt Wolfram, who wrote one of the chapters in my book, he has studied both dialects extensively, and he's written extensively about both. In fact, the chapter in my book is about African-American vernacular in central Appalachia. So, yeah, lots of similarities and issues
0: is there one issue that to you kind of strikes you as the biggest issue facing people who speak these dialects?
1: Probably. Well, I don't know that I would could say this is the biggest, but it's a big one is this assumption that people speak that way because they're not as smart, they're not as intelligent as other people. And that's simply not true. William Labov, one of the most famous linguists, right, disproved that in the nineteen sixties with inner city kids because people were saying the same thing about African-American vernacular, and he did studies that, that disproved that. There's no difference in cognitive function. It really is a cultural, regional thing that we do. It is. It, it comes down to solidarity with your community, with your peers, and with your family.
0: So do you think that is there something with um, pride on the part of the speakers there? Is there something else that you think could help make it so that people who speak these dialects, people who speak these kinds of English, face less judgment when they leave their their communities?
1: Sure. I think understanding where it comes from is one of the biggest things. That's, that's why Nancy and I did this book. You know, understanding the history of the, the dialects The histories of the migration patterns, the influences and where these phrases come from, the fact that the grammar patterns, a lot of people don't know that these grammar patterns came from uh, the Scots-Irish and the Southern Englanders who first came here, and that some of them are very, very old, that they predate Chaucer even. So it's not the result of an inability to speak standard English. So I think that knowledge, that understanding of the history of the dialects, and then why people continue to use them even when they know that standard English exists and they know how to use it, those are two big things. Knowledge is key. I think I think knowledge in many ways can combat that stigma and the stereotype because the stereotype is based on a myth that people don't know standard English, or that they um, aren't as smart as other people, or maybe that they're lazy. You know, they're associated with the working class, but it's not just working class people who who speak in vernacular dialects. People from all classes speak in vernacular dialects.
0: Coming off of that, could you say a little more about what the different influences are that have shaped this dialect? Could you kind of just give like a quick time lapse of how these, you know, how these influences came in and layered on top of each other? Well,
1: the the Southern Englanders were the first to bring the dialects here. And then the Scots-Irish came through probably in the biggest numbers, I think by the mid to late... 18th century there were 200,000 Scots-Irish here and then in a hundred years time I think there was something like two million but when they came through the northern cultural hearth and they came across to the mountains the German settlers had already taken up most of that land and there's some German influence as well and so they turned south and they fanned out through the Appalachian mountain chain and the theory is that they understood that these mountains were like home and they knew how to live there and they knew how to work there so they went all the way all the way down into Georgia. They fanned out along the mountain chain. So those groups were had the most to do with early dialects. Then when industrialization happened and huge waves of immigrants, you know, you can look at any cemetery in some of these coal camp towns and you know how diverse they were. That's gonna have an effect when people left to find work in the factories that's going to have an effect. Dialect is going to go with people and influence is going to come back with people as they're traveling back and forth. And again, as transportation became more common, people were coming in and out more frequently, that's going to cause some changes um, to the dialects. So I think all of that together had a lot to do with it. But again, you're going to have these pockets of... Of places where families are going to stay generation after generation after generation, and certainly that helped to preserve some of the forms, some of the grammar patterns in particular, some of the vocabulary, and the way that people were speaking.
0: So you were kind of describing the whole thing in broad strokes, which thank you, I know it's mm-hmm. a hard thing to do, <laughs> but but then the, these pockets that you're talking about, mm-hmm. each of those ends up being a little bit different from the next one, right? Just like each person talks sure. a little different from, from the next. Mm-hmm. Are there any, any of these pockets that you know, little pockets of Appalachian English that you found particularly interesting or surprising, and that they're a mixture of like, how did that feature get over there from this place?
1: Um, I haven't studied any any particular communities specifically. I know there are some studies in uh, my book of particular communities uh, about what is going away and what is intensifying. You know, I think what I find most fascinating is uh, Michael Montgomery found something like 382 words that are still, you can still hear them, not so often, but they come exclusively from the historic Ulster province of, of Ireland, from the Scots-Irish, and these are words like Irish for chilly or cool, ill for bad-tempered, snake feeder for dragonfly, have you heard any of these? These are used mostly by the older generations. My great-grandmother, I grew up down in Lee County, Virginia, in Jonesville, and she would talk about peafowls. She had peafowls that lived in the backyard. She would sew a counterpane for the bed instead of a bedspread. She kept her clothes in a robe, You know, and these are words I don't use, but she did. And so I've always remembered the words that, you know, haints. She'd tell haint tales from the holler. So those were always things that fascinated me, you know, those words that were continu- that she continued to use that we don't use anymore.
0: Do you think that there's really been a, a shift in how this has gotten passed down? It sounds like there was kind of a, for a lot of people, there was a streak of, you know, four or five, six generations where yeah. things didn't get changed much. Do you think that there's a big shift now? And if so, what do you think is causing it? I think
1: there's probably a big shift. I think as education has become more attainable, um, I did a study with four generation families of women, I looked at seven groups, and you can see that as women become more educated in their families, education doesn't make you smarter, but it means that you have to work with more people and that you're going to get a job that's going to cause you to work with more people. And so what I found was that language was changing as a result of their need to work and, and the level of educational attainment and having to code shift more frequently for their occupations. You know, these were teachers and librarians and principals. And so words like that just don't have a place. You know, words like peafowl and shiverobe" and they just don't have a place. And so, you know, if you go from a generation who lives on a farm to a generation that works exclusively in an office, then naturally that's going to change the the type of vocabulary that you use. So I really think that has a lot to do with it.
0: So what comes of that is there are there good things to to people's language kind of coming more towards the middle or are there bad things that come with losing these words or did, think, do we know
1: I think language i don't know language like i said it's not static it's a moving target you you can't say anything definitive about it it's um it's always going to change as people change it will come and it will go you know people said when the radio was invented that 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 would diminish the way that people speak. Um, They said the same thing about television. They're saying the same thing now about the internet and the fact that we can talk face to face with someone from all the way around the world. Uh, Language will always change. Do I think Appalachian Englishes will die out? I doubt it. I think that we have a very strong culture that we celebrate in so many ways. It's not just in everyday conversation. It's in the music. It's in the literature you know, it's in religion. It's infused into so many different aspects of the region and its culture that I, I don't see it dying out anytime soon.
0: So do you have a, a vision of what its future would be like for the, for the dialect?
1: Oh, you know, probably different variations, but with some of the same relics floating around, you know, there are Features that we probably won't hear anymore. Um, there's a feature that Kirk Hazen says is dying out in West Virginia, and I suspect in other places too. It's it's called the a prefix. When you say I'm a fix, I'm a going somewhere, I'm a fixing to do something. He says that that's leveling in West Virginia, so it, it's probably leveling everywhere else with older generations especially. So I think there, you know, I just envision changes, some terms becoming relics new terms, new phrasing popping up, becoming part of the everyday vernacular. Um, that's inevitable,
0: you know. Well, can you, you used the word leveling. Could you just say what, what that means? How when it, we
1: talk about a dialect feature that is fading or dying out, we call it leveling.
0: And the idea there is it's it's like it used to stick out as something different. And now well it's, it's
1: it, it it was a prominent part of the spoken vernacular but people aren't using it as much anymore so you just don't hear it anymore and usually leveling comes you know with each generation. So the older generations may be using it but the younger generations
0: aren't. The other thing you mentioned that got me curious is you were saying you were talking about new features coming in. Are there are there, like, new things happening that are uniquely Appalachian that are happening in language that you know of?
1: I don't think there's anything uniquely Appalachian. Uh, I could be wrong, but I, I, you know, like I said, communication is a global thing now. Appalachia is not this isolated community, um, and so people come and people go, so to say anything's uniquely Appalachian would probably be, I don't know how it could be. I know that there is one feature that uh, Hazen talks about that started on the West Coast that is becoming more prominent among younger generations here, and that is the phrase, the be like um, phrase, um, I'm like, or I, it, it replaces say or said in a sentence. She was like, I'm going to the store. Or he was like, I'm not going to go to school today, instead of say or said. So that's becoming part of the dialect, according to Hazen. That's a, that spread rapidly in the latter part of the 20th century, probably because of television. Um, and now you see it a lot in social media among youth. So that's going to become a permanent thing, probably.
0: Coming back to, to the experience, I guess, of, of individual people from here, especially I'm thinking about people who, who have... I guess what an outsider would consider a thick accent but I guess mm-hmm. what what I don't know what what would be the right way to talk about that to say someone has like a
1: a thick accent's fine that's that's how we describe it
0: sometimes okay. a heavy accent okay but it's, it's really just saying their their dialect is more Appalachian is that what it means or?
1: it's it's a strong vernacular variety yeah the the farther away you get from standard English you know the more the stronger the vernacular, yeah, okay. the heavier the accent.
0: So we're vernacular, that just means, so vernacular is just kind every of non-standard day, yeah. every day. Mm-hmm. Okay, so for for someone who's most comfortable speaking more like that, mm-hmm. do you have advice that you give people who, who find themselves in a situation where, you know, people are judging them, are... Are giving them a hard time, or sometimes are even having a hard time understanding them. Is there? Mm-hmm. Do you have a, a favorite approach for those kinds of situations?
1: I don't get that question very often, but it, I think there are two things there. If if someone is saying I can't understand you, well, code switching is important. You know, repeating yourself or using a different term or using a different pronunciation and knowing how to do that. Um, but if someone's judging you, then. I, I think I think the best way to counter that is with information. You know, if someone judges me, then my response is to tell them about. Well, let me tell you about my dialect. I'll tell you about the history of my dialect. You know, I don't have anything witty to say right at the moment, but I, I think information is the key. I think I think I've had people judge me from being Appalachia, thinking I was going to laugh with them thinking that I had internalized it and that I was going to laugh right along with their joke. Um, and that is something that people encounter too. You ex- you know, it's so widespread. It's not taboo yet to make fun of someone who is perceived as white and lower class. That's not a taboo thing in, this, in America. Um, so you do hear it more frequently and you hear it, you know, you hear it on television. I mean, it's, it's out there. It's on reality television. So I think I think knowledge is probably the best way to counter stereotypical assumptions. It's just know about your linguistic history. Educate yourself about why you sound the way that you do. And, and then let people know if they have a problem with it.
0: And so the important points are kind of what you were saying before. Mm -hmm. It's this comes from these particular places, which is where my family's been from, and this is what they picked up, and this is how I speak. And this is how
1: I speak, and And this is what's comfortable for me. Yeah. Well,
0: um, what about code switching in the other direction? Do you have thoughts on people who come in from outside Appalachia or people, even a person like myself who... You know, I I didn't grow up with a very strong vernacular accent. Mm-hmm. I just have little hints, I think, here and there. Mm-hmm. I mean, do you have thoughts on on if a per on a person coming from outside and wanting to code switch more towards the Into vernacular?
1: <laughs> I think if you're here long enough, you pick up, you pick up certain ways of saying things without really. It's a subconscious thing. My husband's from Richmond, Virginia, and he I I've noticed even and he does too. He knows it. In his accent, sometimes he'll say I think instead of I think. So I think it's mostly a subconscious thing. I have friends who have moved to England, and they sound English now, you know. So And I don't think they meant to do that. I think it just happens. I think you tend to mirror, and I've read studies about this, you do, you tend to mirror the speech that's around you when you're around it long enough. Um, but sure, I mean, if somebody wants to come in and start Talking Appalachian, then more power to <laughs> more power to them. It's very hard, though. I've been in a lot of writing workshops with writers who don't know the dialect well enough to write in it, but they want to learn, and that's hard. I think that's harder when you're not a native to know those little those nuances of sound without creating caricature.
0: So for for someone who falls in anywhere in this, anyone who's who's worrying about. I feel like a lot of people have some degree of worry about how they sound. Mm-hmm. Does it, I mean, you were saying that a lot of it just happens subconsciously. Do you think that it's often wiser just to, to let yourself sound like what you're going to sound like and not try and think about it too you much? You I
1: think I think you should own it. Georgella Lyon has this wonderful word, and it's called voice place. That's the name of her essay in my book about how she came into her voice and an understanding of why she speaks the way that she does. And she says it's almost a spiritual intersection between your voice and the place that created your voice. You know, it's like a fingerprint. And I I say own it. I say that's your voice place. That's who you are. Don't be ashamed of it. Um, I'm not. It doesn't mean I'm not self-aware. I am. I realize when I'm in a room full of people and none of them are from Appalachia that I sound different. And sometimes that can make people very uncomfortable, and they don't want to be different. And I understand that. I deal with this with students in communication studies. There are students who say, I want to go into broadcasting. I can't sound like this anymore. Um, You know, what am I going to do? And we have that conversation. There are some careers that are just, there's the expectation that you're going to have to sound like you're from nowhere, right? You're going to have to sound... um, Standard. Standardized. And I understand that, too. But other than those exceptions, I think that people should just own it. Just say, this is who I am.
0: In the classes that you teach, is that one of the bigger messages you try to get across? Or what would you say you, as a teacher, what is the biggest idea that you're trying to get across to your students?
1: That it's silly not to think that you don't need to know standard English you have everybody needs to know standard English like I said for clarity above all else but understanding that standard English is associated with all of these positive traits so it is ultimately good to have a knowledge of both so that you can retain your comfortable voice as well as standard English but you know um, there's some power that comes with knowing your vernacular dialect and using it you know Lee Smith says when she buys a car she drives a hard bargain she gets back into that southern you know that southern accent makes a difference when she's buying a car in the south it's gonna open doors for you if you stay in your region to sound like whoever you're communicating with and that's a fact it it can be empowering to have both but certainly I think above all else it gives people permission not to separate from their families particularly first-generation college goers you know, I know when you go away to college, I experience this, and you come back and you sound different, it's a hard thing. It's a, It creates a rift between you and your family sometimes and you and your friends sometimes. And so it gives them permission to not have to change the way that they sound unless they want to.
0: I'm interested to hear a little more of your personal, how you've handled these different language issues of, you know, what voice you want to put out to right. the world.
1: You know, for the longest time, I really tried to hide it, probably all the way through graduate school. And then when I started teaching, and I came back to the area to teach, and I recognized that my students were me, that they sounded like me, how I sounded at one time, that they were using a dialect that I recognized and grew up with, and it felt counterintuitive to me to tell them that was wrong you know, I had a real internal struggle for a long time as a teacher, saying it's wrong, marking papers and saying it's wrong. And when I went back to school and got my PhD and I really got into sociolinguistics and I really started to study the history of the dialects and I was reading all of these researchers who were saying you shouldn't teach that way. You know, it really is about code shifting. It really is about letting them keep their voice and teaching standard English at the same time. I realized that's, you know, that's what I wanted to do. That was that was empowering for me. Um, to read all of that research and understand that my intuition was right, that I it isn't wrong, it isn't incorrect, it isn't inappropriate, it isn't bad, it isn't stupid, it isn't redneck. It is full of linguistic artifacts. And so that's, I guess, how I choose to approach it. But it took a long time for me. It took a long time. And I'm sad that it took that long, but... Unfortunately, you don't. We didn't have a class called "Talking Appalachian" when I was in college, or I would have figured it out a lot sooner. But we did have a class in Appalachian prose and poetry. And when I started reading Harriet Simpson Arno and Lee Smith and James Steele, and I recognized the voices in those novels, and those people sounded like me, then I knew there was I was onto something there. You know, I I thought if that's important enough to be in a book those people who sound like me, then there's something here. This can't be wrong. So that really, that was sort of a spark that just grew and grew and grew for me.
0: So it seems like it's a process, though, that's taken a lot of thought and Mm -hmm. a lot of effort, kind of. And I mean, you've also, you've made this your livelihood, working with language and especially the Appalachian dialect. What is it that, that kind of drove you to go through all of this to make this the outlet for your efforts?
1: I think my love for my family and my love for my region, and I know that sounds really broad, but because I was born in a multi-generation family, and I had such a wonderful, wonderful childhood with all of these grandparents and my parents raising me all together, and this rich understanding of music, and I was always around music, and always around tradition and stories, and I just never wanted to let go of that. That was so important to me. And and coming back to the region and really getting involved in um, Appalachian studies, I think, drove me to keep going with it and, and, and learning more. And when I was in my Ph.D. program, I could not find a book that had everything I needed all in one place. Finding scraps of things and, and, and trying to make sense of what I was learning. And uh, I went to my professor at the time she was my dissertation director Nancy Hayward and I said I want to do this book are you interested in doing this because her mother was from Appalachia so I knew she had an interest in the dialects as well and she said yeah and so it took us several years to do it because it's it's a political topic it's hard to get everybody on board and agree you know we couldn't even agree on a title because what do you call it there's no one Appalachian English so we can't call it that So
0: you settled on Talking Appalachian. We settled
1: on Talking Appalachian because it seemed to bring everything together under one umbrella. It didn't sound too scholarly. It wouldn't turn people off. Um, But it did encompass what we were trying to do. So, um, yeah, she said yes, and we embarked on that together, and, and I'm really happy with the result. I really believe that you have to have knowledge as well as the creative part you have to bring both parts together to truly understand the creative essays and the poetry and the the pieces of novels that we've taken that deal with language I think all of that has to work together for a full understanding
0: and is is that full understanding do you feel like that's what you want this book to accomplish to get more people to understand what the dialect is or is there another is there another something you want it to do past that or it's really just you think if people understand it better? I think if
1: it well and I think if it goes as far as to change people's minds you know if if someone reads it that operates under these assumptions these stereotypical assumptions and it changes their mind then that's that's great that's gravy you know that's wonderful
0: That connects to me. when I I, I studied linguistics for a little bit. Mm -hmm. And at one point, someone asked me what was the most powerful idea that I'd pulled out of it. And I thought for a minute, and the one that I came up with was, I really like the idea that language is shaped by people using it. So every time you use a word, you're shaping what language is a little bit. Yeah. So thinking of everyone as having that power with every word they say, do you feel like for people in Appalachia, or is people talking Appalachian, is there something important to keep in mind about what they're doing to this dialect as they speak it?
1: Well, again, I think it's such an individual, language is such an individual experience. um, I keep coming back to this idea that you have to know why you're speaking the way that you do on a very personal level. It can't be Ultimately, it shouldn't be because somebody wants you to speak a certain way. If you're using this or that word or this or that phrase or this or that pronunciation, you want to be connected to something. And I, I think everybody has to sort of figure that out for themselves. But ultimately, if somebody wants to put on their paints in the morning, then I say they put on their paints in the morning. and You know, let that be it. That should be the way that they use that term. I just, again, I just think it's a very personal it's a very personal choice nobody owns the dialects you know there's no right or wrong way to use them except nobody should be using them to make fun of anybody but I think that just know why know why you speak the way that you do
0: to me it's it's funny because I it sounds like it should be easy to know like oh why do I say what I say Mm, it's not but I mean why why do you think it is so hard
1: Because not only do you have all of these, all of this information and all of these pieces that make the dialects what they are, it's a very political hot-button topic. Language is a hot-button issue. If you have read about the Oakland-California controversy with teaching, they used the term ebonics then in public schools and the reaction people had to and they weren't really teaching ebonics that was just the message people heard it was let's have an appreciation and understanding of a historic dialect or you'll hear on the radio and you'll hear it with politicians and it gets connected to immigration If people want to come to this country they need to learn English and speak English and I hear people complaining all the time about that so language is a is a political topic, and I, that's another reason why it's not easy. Everybody has an opinion, and sometimes it's really connected to emotion.
0: Connected to emotion. Mm-hmm. I guess connected to emotion, that kind of to me is, I guess mm-hmm. so much of it isn't conscious.
1: Yeah, people have emotional reactions sometimes to these issues rather than thinking them through, you know, and thinking about them in the way that we've been talking about it. And again, some of that is the human tendency or people's choices about how they perceive class, how they perceive race. If you, if you see somebody have an emotional reaction to a variety of a language, it's probably the person they're judging. It's not the language itself. That's a hard fact, but that's a fact.
0: That is a hard fact. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean that that might be a beautiful note to close on, but <laughs> if you have anything else you'd like to add any final words you'd, you'd like to have heard and thought about.
1: Oh, I just there's a wonderful poem in the in, at the back of the book that Anne Shelby wrote, a Kentucky author called Spellcheck and
0: Would you like to read it?
1: I'd love to read it. It's about grappling with technology when technology won't let you keep your original voice. Um Spellcheck by Anne Shelby. It's handy, but not much account for writing hillbilly poems with. It won't let you waller, won't let you foller a feller up the holler. Makes you have titles where titties ought to be. I'll go along with changing logwoods into dogwoods, but before I could say undo, it turned my house cat into a housecoat. Salad, new ground, June bug, graveyard, not in dictionary. You can't have a grandbaby on this thing without special arrangements. One spell transformed my taters into tatters, served me subpoenas when I ordered soup beans. Now it wants to replace the home place with just some place. Is this the same spell that changed proud to poor, turned minnows into memories? I need flies buzzing in this poem, cool snap of beans breaking on the porch, the tenor of coon hounds on a moonlit ridge. Exit. Float a while on a honeysuckle breeze. Spell. How long to sit on a sycamore bank with your feet in the creek? So she's got sort of a double play on the word spell there. You know, spell is a measure of time in Appalachia. But then you've got this device that we all fight with all the time that won't let us say the things that we want to say, the way that we want to say them.
0: So and that's kind of where we are is yeah. we're, we're stuck trying to keep things meaning what they mean but also fit into the, the modern, changing world.
1: That's right. That's right.
0: We just
1: keep fighting with it. Keep it our way.
0: Well, thank you so much once again for taking the time to speak with me and, and get these thoughts out in the world.
1: Thank you. It was a pleasure.
0: That was Professor Amy Clark. The poem she just read is included in the book Talking Appalachian, a collection of writings in and about Appalachian dialects, edited by Amy Clark together with Nancy Hayward. You can ask for it in your local bookstore or buy it online. I'm Benny Becker, and that's it for this week's Mountain Talk, but stay tuned. There's more good stuff ahead here on WMMT, Real People Radio.